Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Red Village Church. So, at Red Village, we believe in the providence of God, that God is just doing things providentially in mysterious ways. We also believe within the providence of God that uh, he uses sometimes sneaky wives. And so, I would like for all of the guys to stand up who came providentially this morning wearing the same shirt. It is such a good look, such a good look. So people ask me, like, where's my shirt? And, you know, I went on Amazon to buy one, and they're all sold out for some reason. So, unfortunately, I was left out. Uh, but I am glad you're here. I, I, honestly, I don't think I've had more excitement to see who would come to church today. <laughs> Just like my eyes are glued on that front door the whole time to see it. So, uh, well done, uh, wives of the church. So, if I haven't met you, my name is Aaron. I'm the pastor here, and uh, grateful you're with us with, uh, uh, today. So, if you have a Bible with you, which I hope you do, if you'd open up to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some on the chairs around you if you want to grab one. So Luke is in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. So starting today and for the next couple of Sundays, we're actually going to be uh, looking at Luke chapter 2. So our task for today is just starting in verse 1 um, through verse 7 of chapter 2. So let me read uh, the sacred word and then we'll pray, ask for the Lord's blessing on this time, and then we will... I'll work through the passage. So Luke 2, starting verse 1, this is what the Bible says. It says, In those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was Syri- or governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there's no place for them in the inn. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. And uh, Lord, please help me to be a good communicator of your word. That the congregation be good listeners to of your word, and uh, Lord, this morning we just pray that your word would triumph in our hearts. I pray so in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so something I mentioned in the past, and I want to mention it again here, it's actually something I think we even mentioned in the membership classes, that it's actually really important for us as a church to keep going over like familiar stories, rehearsing familiar truths, uh, rather than just like assuming them. Because what can happen, what will happen, if we do not keep going over familiar stories, if we do not keep rehearsing familiar truths, if we start to assume them, in just a matter of time, the stories, the truths, will become forgotten to us. And these will be forgotten, even though so many of these stories and truths are like at the bedrock of our Christian faith. So I say again to you this morning, uh, that to you, because of the next three weeks, as mentioned at the start, I want to go over a familiar story with you, the familiar truth with you, revolving around the story of Christmas the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word of God, the second member of the blessed Trinity, who became flesh to dwell among us, fully God, fully man. And the person of Jesus Christ, he came for us. And he came to live the life that we can never live, one that was sinless in every way. He came to die the death that we deserve to die, where he became the perfect atoning sacrifice of our sin, only to rise again on the third day to prove that he is indeed the king over all things. And he is the king who is able to give eternal life to all who he calls to himself. 
this morning, what we're going to do is simply what we normally do as a church. And I'm just going to walk us through the passage I just read for you in Luke 1. This is a passage I trust most of us here are very familiar with. And after we walk through the passage, I want to organize some thoughts for you from the passage, which are thoughts that are not going to be new to most of us here. In fact, I actually have no ambitions to tell you new truths. My ambition is just to have organized thoughts to keep telling you the same simple truths that have been told over and over again throughout church, uh, church history. Trust me, these same truths that have been told and retold from generation to generation are what are continuing to be used by the Lord to set us free in our walk with him. And by the way, on a little side note at that point, if anyone has like a new perspective on the Christian faith, one that like no one throughout church history has ever understood or thought of, at minimal, be very skeptical. So our faith is not a search for new truths. Rather, our faith is a faith by which we seek to walk in faithfulness to the truths that have been passed down to us, truths that in turn we hope to pass down to others. Okay, so before we walk through the text, let me give you the context, which is a context that actually is best set by going all the way back to the very beginning in the story of Genesis, where we see the truth that the reason why we are all here, why, in fact, everything is here, because Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, they are labeled by God as good. With the creation of mankind, who is created in God's very image, labeled as very good. And mankind is labeled as very good because we are set apart uniquely from the rest of creation. In fact, we're like the crescendo of creation. And we are the crescendo because, as mentioned, we have been created in the image of God himself. Created to know God and to live in a real relational a relationship with him. In Genesis, as mankind was given this unique position before God, able to know him, they also were given a mandate by God to have dominion over the rest of creation. God also gave the command to God or to God's people or to the people to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the image or the earth with the image of God placed in us. However, in the context of our story today, what we see in Genesis even though mankind is created to know God in very real personal ways, even though mankind is created to have dominion, uh, created to spread his image over the world, we also see they were given one specific command, something they were not to do. And they were commanded to not eat of one, true, uh, one tree in the garden, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if mankind, if they ate of that tree, what would happen? Their eyes would be open, open to sin, to all that which is evil. And there would be grave consequences to mankind for rebelling against God. Specifically, we would now know physical death and all the hurt and the pain that now plagues this life. We also would know spiritual death, where mankind would be spiritually separated from the relationship that they once had with God. And in their separation from God, they'd be moved from being in a loving relationship with him to now being at enmity with him. But do you know the story of creation? Do you know that's exactly what our first parents did? Right? Adam and Eve, they did not heed to what God told them. They did not listen to his warning. They did not obey his good command. Rather, they doubted God. They doubted his word. They did the very thing he warned them, commanded them not to do, and they ate the forbidden tree. And as they ate of the forbidden tree, everything that God told them would happen, indeed, happened. Their eyes were opened. Uh, they came a curse on the land, which led to physical death. And indeed, they were separated from the very God they were created to know. And as they were separated from the God 
They're created to know they're actually placed under his judgment because of their disobedience. We see all of this in the first three chapters of Genesis. This is all running in the context of our passage today. However, we also see in Genesis 3, which also is running in the context of our passage, is in Genesis 3, there's actually some good news. There's actually good news of great joy, good news of real hope. And the good news that we see in Genesis 3, that even though mankind is placed under the God's judgment, even though there was a curse that now filled the land, God made a promise to mankind, a good news promise, that one day he would send someone to come and make things right, to reverse the curse, to restore mankind back into the relationship with God. Friends, that's the context of our passage this morning in Luke 2. Context that starts in Genesis, that runs all the way through the Old Testament scripture, where there's this great anticipation from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament of who would be the one who would come. There'd be a longing for this one to come. So that being said, we're going to look back in our chapter 2, starting in verse 1. See, at this right time, as the fullness of time had come, in accordance with God's sovereign hand, the sovereign will of the Lord. In those days, we see that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world would be registered. Now, Caesar Augustus is also known by the name Octavian. So there's a few things that he's most known for. So first, he actually was the grandson of Julius Caesar, the name I'm sure most of us are familiar with. Uh, second, Octavian is actually recognized as the first Roman emperor. So before Octavian, there's like much infighting going on throughout the empire. But during the reign of Octavian, he was able to bring about peace and unity, uh, which led Rome to some of its greatest political heights. So in our story today, in the fullness of time, as Caesar Augustus was ruling over his strong, unified empire, he wanted to know just how strong it was. So he sent a decree throughout the entire Roman empire. And this decree was to help him with a few things. Uh, first, it would help him just know how many were in his empire. That would help him to know, like, his uh, military strength by seeing how many men were fit into requirements for military service. In addition, Caesar Augustus, like, he was a politician. So setting forth this decree would help him know how much tax money uh, he could collect. So for him, this is an important endeavor in our chapter here. Right, this is why he's calling for his entire empire to be registered. Verse 2, can I take you guys there? As the decree went forward, this requirement of registration... We see that this is the first time this happened while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, or possibly translated, first time it happened before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And by the way, this is why there's a little bit of a debate um, on the, the, of when these events took place, you know, how you translate this here. So some scholars think it could maybe be around 6 BC, others around 6 AD, somewhere in there. Verse 3, as the decree went forward, we see that the decree went forward with an instruction which is an instruction that everyone is to head back to their hometown. And this instruction wasn't given by Caesar just because he's like a, a, a fan of like hometowns, and he just wanted these empires to stay connected to their home roots. Rather, this action is sending everyone back home. Practically, this would have made the head count easier for him to do. And this would have been particularly easier for him to understand the family lines uh, once everyone was together, which would have been particularly important in Judea, which is where our text is from. So in the Jewish culture of this time period, much of the property rights in Judea were tied to one's ancestral roots, like what family you're a part of. So in this decree, everyone had to head home to get counted. 
and this would help Caesar understand who owned the land and how he can most effectively tax Judea. Verse 4. We read, as this decree went forward, it required a young couple, Mary and Joseph, to go on a road trip, where they had to head up from the region of Galilee. And here, the up here, this is heading up as reference to, like, elevation, like, not direction. So they went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, a small town, kind of a no, uh, not particularly noteworthy, kind of off the beaten path. And they go from Nazareth, in the region of Galilee, and to travel to the region of Judea, to the city of David that is called Bethlehem. Okay, now let me hit pause here, just remind us some of the details. First, to start off with Mary and Joseph. So for Joseph, up to our text today in Luke 2, we don't know a lot about him. Um, we see a few things in chapter 1 of Luke. We see that he was betrothed to Mary, which is kind of similar to like being engaged in our culture. Uh, in chapter 1, we also see that Joseph was from the house of David, which is the great king of the Old Testament. And this is why that he was heading up to Bethlehem. This is his family hometown. For Mary, in the context of Luke 2, we actually know a little bit more. We see more of her in chapter 1 of Luke. Most interesting, we see that she was a virgin. And even though she was a virgin in chapter 1, we see that she was told by the angel that she would bear a child. And that child would be miraculously conceived within her by the Holy Spirit of God. And by the way, this is actually one of the prophecies of the Old Testament. This is a prophecy to help God's people know who was the one in Genesis 3 that was to come. Like Isaiah in chapter 7 just simply says, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and will bear a son. In addition, Luke chapter 1, we also see that Mary had a, a relative named Elizabeth, uh, a lady who was advanced in age, who herself had an unexpected birth. And she gave birth to a son that they named John. And by the way, this John also was prophesied about. John was to be the one who be the forerunner of the promised one to come, to prepare the way of the one who was to come. Now, this is John the Baptist that we see as the New Testament uh, develops. Keep going in chapter 1. We also see Mary seemed to have a pretty strong faith in the Lord. So we see this in a few places in chapter 1. Perhaps most clearly, we see Mary's faith on display through an incredible song of praise that she wrote to the Lord where she expressed gratitude for the honor bestowed upon her to give birth to the long-awaited, the long-anticipated promised one. By the way, if you read through that uh, song of Mary, uh, just take note that as Mary sang that song, she sang praise to her God and Savior, which gives implication that Mary understood that she was actually a sinner, that she, like everyone else, needed God to be her Savior. This is one of the reasons why we reject any teaching that Mary was, like, sinless. Mary certainly didn't think she was sinless. She knew she was a sinner and also in need of a savior. Okay, so Mary and Joseph, also for the sake of information, the town of Bethlehem, called, or town of David called Bethlehem. So this is actually found in the Old Testament, a few places. Uh, this is more than just a place where David was born. Um, in the Old Testament, we see that this, uh, this is in the book of Ruth, which is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. So Ruth is set in Bethlehem. And King David, we actually see, came from the line of Ruth, which reminds us all the different stories in the Old Testament are not just like random stories thrown together. Rather, these stories were told to help point us to Jesus Christ so we know who he was, who he came from. Keep going. Verse 5. We read as this young couple, as they were engaged to be married, as they made their way to Bethlehem to be registered, as they were making their way back to the home of David, we see that Virgin Mary was with child, the promised child in chapter 1. And we see in our scene today that she was pretty far along in her pregnancy. 
In fact, she was so far along in verse 6 that while they are there, Mary went into labor. In a text, verse 7, as that child was born, we see there was her firstborn, a son. And they took the firstborn and they wrapped them in swaddling clothes and laid them in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, let me hit a few things here that I think are actually important to see in these details. So first, just the term firstborn. See how that's in the text? So I do, I do think this carries a little bit of a double meaning here. So the one meaning is communicating simply that Jesus was the first child born to Mary, right? her firstborn. Then the other meaning, which has both cultural and biblical significance, is the term firstborn is actually a title. A title that signifies prominence, uh, significance. So we see this a few places in the scripture. I think it's actually one of the anticipation of the Old Testament. Like who would be the firstborn, the one who is prominent to come and rule over God's people? I think that's what Luke is communicating to us in their text. That this child is not simply the firstborn physical son of Mary, even though he certainly was. But more than that, this child of Mary, Jesus Christ, he is the prominent one. He's the one who of their all things. Colossians 1, which is an early hymn written about Jesus Christ, picks up on this, what Luke is commenting in. It says this, this is he speaking to Jesus. He is the image of the visible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him, and he is above all things. In him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven." making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Second, see the phrase swaddling clothes in our passage, which is kind of an interesting detail to include. So the question is, like, why would Luke put this here? And he actually puts it in our passage we're going to look at next week, which we did in the call to worship. I don't think this is like a filler word for him. You know, I don't think like the early church leaders you know, tasked Luke to write a paper you know, paper that needed to be double-spaced, uh, X amount of pages in length. But after Luke finished up his rough draft, he realized, you know, he's a little bit short on his assignment. So he decides, like, to go back through to put some filler words in, right, some filler details like swaddling clothes, you know, just to make his uh, page count fit. I, I don't think that's what's happened. Rather, I think there's a purpose why he concluded this detail. So he mentioned, so why? Why include this? In fact, twice. Pastor, next week, he actually said it was a sign, swaddling clothes. So let me give you a few details, or give you different thoughts on why Luke decided to communicate swaddling clothes. So the first is just what I actually tend to agree with, is that Luke is simply communicating that as Jesus Christ came, as God in the flesh came, he came to be fully man, to take on the full human experience. So in the text, this detail of Jesus being wrapped in swaddling clothes, right, this is a part of a normal experience right, for babies to be swaddled or snuggled into clothes. Perhaps this is why Luke communicated this detail, to communicate that Jesus was indeed fully a baby in this scene, which is perhaps a little detail, but points to a big theological truth, that Jesus Christ came. He came fully God and fully man. Yeah. So that as fully man, he could be our substitute, and that he could be the one who can sympathize with us in every way, yet without sin. Yeah. So that's one thought. However, let me mention with a little bit of caution that some think swaddling clothes actually communicates a little bit more. And I think that particularly because of our passage next week, 
So I'll share two reasons or two thoughts with you. There are some that believe that the swaddling clothes that Jesus was wrapped in, this is actually material that shepherds would put on their sheep when they were born to help keep them spotless. Almost like socks to keep like dirt and debris off of the sheep. Okay, now there does seem to be evidence that many of the sheep that were used at the temple in Jerusalem for sacrifice, like these spotless lambs, were actually raised in Bethlehem. And it's very possible, maybe even probable, that the shepherds who are watching their flock by night, that affects next week, were watching sheep that were meant for the Old Testament sacrifice. So for those who hold this belief of swaddling clothes, they think that the swaddling clothes, this is Luke communicating, almost like in prophetic sense, that Jesus Christ came to be the spotless Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And he actually wants us to see that truth from his birth. By the way, it does seem possible that Jesus wrapped in clothes meant for sheep because, I mean, after all, he was born among animals and laid in a manger, which we'll talk about more in just a second. But before we get there, let me also mention another thought that why Luke would communicate swaddling clothes. So some think the clothes that Jesus wrapped in was actually burial clothes. Can I remember the story of Lazarus, John 11? Remember who he's wrapped in linens as he came out of the tomb after Jesus raised him from the dead? Uh, remember when Jesus himself died on the cross, how they took down his body from the cross and they wrapped him in linens? See, there are some that think the swaddling clothes here were actually grave clothes, like a similar type of linens. So likewise, Luke is almost like being like prophetic here to symbolize that Jesus was born to die. And as the great Christmas carol sings, that man no more may die. Now, as mentioned, it's hard to know exactly why Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes, why Luke includes it, but I do think it's something worth pondering for us. I do think it's meant to communicate something to us. Okay, keep going. In the verse I just read for you previously, the word manger. Okay, so this is a feeding trough used for animals. This is why we see, like, animals, like, in every nativity set. Like, Jesus was born among animals. He was born in this lowly place. And to me, this is no doubt. This is setting us up for the humble life and the humble death of our Lord. Should we get to in just a bit here? Okay, so take note of that. Fourth, let's take the word, note of the word in in our passage. Because as you take note of that word, I don't think you should think something like Holiday Inn or Motel 6. Rather, this is probably better understood as like almost like a guest room. Uh, think like an upper room, in fact. So in Luke 22, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, remember how he celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples? Remember he celebrated that? It was an upper room, a guest room. So in our text, I think that's how we should read this. Right? There's no room in the guest room. Now, let me explain why I, why I don't think it's a hotel. So first, in Bethlehem, this is actually a pretty small town in this time period. And it would have been pretty uncommon for a town of this size to have, like, inns. Second, even if there happened to be inns, it seems incredibly unlikely that this young couple, Joseph and Mary, would have enough disposable income to, like, make payments to stay at an inn. Especially when you consider it would have been like a multiple day or longer process to get everyone's uh, records in place. It seemed very unlikely they could stay in an inn if there was one. Third, because of hospitality, how that was viewed culturally, it actually would have been a family shame, I think, to not provide out-of-town guests with a place to stay in one's home. The expectation was for hospitality, for to have your family, even extended family, stay in your house. So most likely in this scene, there's no space in the guest room Right, no room, no space. And it's simply because all the relatives of Joseph 
just like him, made their way back to Bethlehem to be registered. And as the extended family of Joseph filled the guest room, it would have made it really hard for Mary to go through the process of giving birth. So what the lung couple did, right, they tried to find a little bit of space, a little bit of privacy. And the only space they could find was where the family animals were kept, possibly like a cave, maybe a stable attached to the house, or possibly just a room on the first floor where at night the family animals would be brought in to help keep them warm. That's how our text ends today. So from this time forward, as mentioned earlier, I just want to give you just some uh, familiar thoughts from this familiar passage. So I don't want to actually share anything new that you haven't already heard probably many, many times in the Christian faith. But to say again, these are so important for us to continue to go back to these familiar truths that ground our faith. We, right, we never want to assume. Right? We never want to forget or reject these truths. Okay, so as you think through this passage, let me give you a few thoughts. So first, as you read through this, God keeps his promises. Right? Take heart. God keeps his promises. That's really at the heart of this story. That through the coming of Jesus Christ, the one born of a virgin, born at the fullness of time, God has indeed kept his promise. A promise that was made all the way back to Genesis 3. Promises made because Jesus Christ came to be born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that through him, through Jesus Christ, we might receive adoption as sons and have our relationship with God restored. Friends, this Christmas, let's be remind, or mindful to remember that God indeed keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to people, including us, even though we continue to sin against him. We're over and over again, you and I, we continue to follow the model of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who sinned against God. I mean, that's the context of this passage. Despite the faithlessness of his people throughout the whole Old Testament, God kept being faithful he kept his promises. He sent the Christ to save faithless people. Amen. Friends, this Christmas season, as we rehearse this familiar truth, we say it again. We can trust. God will keep his promises. All of them. God will be faithful. Right? We can't forget that. Second, as we go through this passage, we go through this Christmas season, let's remember that God is the one who is in control. Now, I assume that some of you are reading through the Advent devotional book that we gave out a few weeks back. And one of my favorite uh, so far is actually when um, the author, uh, John Piper, just took note how God was in sovereign control over this event in this text, including how God is in sovereign control in ways to churn the heart of Caesar to call this census. Right? This became the means by which God sovereignly would guide Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem, not simply to fulfill their duty as citizens, but more importantly, to fulfill all the different promises that God made throughout the entire scriptures. Promises that the one who would to come would be born in Bethlehem. So for us, this Christmas season, right, this familiar truth, listen, we're not the ones who control. God's the one who's in control. Amen. Political leaders are not the ones who are in control. God is the one who is in control. And friends, let's rest in that. Rest that indeed God is in control. Let's rest in it, especially with all the chaos around us. The chaos that doesn't make sense to us. Trust this Christmas that somehow God is using all the different chaoses in our life in perfect harmony to accomplish his will. Amen. Friends, let that give you hope. Say it again. God is the one who is in control. He is in control in such a way that he is making much of Christ by saving a people unto himself. By the way, just to back up 
to our text, just think how confusing this time had to be for the people of Judea. Right? They had an evil pagan empire, like Rome ruling over them. Think how frustrating this had to be for Mary and Joseph. She's very pregnant, yet had to take this trip to Bethlehem, where she'd give birth among animals. That this is all part of God's plan that he is in control of. This beautiful plan to keep his promises to send the Christ to fulfill his word. Third, this Christmas, let's remember that God works in humble ways. Now, obviously, God could have worked however he chooses to work. But often, the means by which God is commonly at work in our lives is through humble means. Right, this is something we've been circling around a few different times in recent sermons, uh, both in our study of 1 Samuel, which we're taking a little break from, as well as even our text last week in Esther. Where God just works through humble means. Right, God, on the first Christmas, right, he could have sent Christ in any way he chose to send Christ. Yet what did he do? He chose to send this promised one in the most humble of ways. I mean, just think, could this story be any less or any more humble than what it is? Here's two ordinary, simple people, Mary and Joseph, who lived in a town of Nazareth that was so unnoteworthy that other places in scriptures, uh, others even questions like, can anything good come out of that place, Nazareth? Think about this. When this humble couple has their first child, their best option, the best option was to give birth by the animals. And this is God's eternal plan that was first promised to his people in Genesis 3. It was all leading to this here, to this humble story where God worked through incredible humility to say it again, for his eternal son to be born among the animals. And for us, we know this humble means by which God chose to work at the birth of our Lord was the same humble means by which he continued to choose to work in the life of our Lord. So much of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ was him toiling in incredible, humble obscurity. In his humble life, as the word became flesh, like he was questioned and doubted by virtually everyone, including his own family. Anything, but like on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord is like abandoned by his friends, betrayed by his friends, and abandoned by his rest of his friends. Then as the friends left his side in great humility, Jesus is now put on trial where he's unfairly treated in such ways that he's like whipped and beat and spit upon and mocked by the very ones that he came to save? Could there be more humility? Then after Jesus had to go through this humble court, or going through the court with incredible humility, we know he's given the most humble of sentences, which is the sentence of death on the cross. Where in even greater humility, Jesus hung on the cross for us, where he willingly, joyfully laid down his life to bear the wrath of God in the place of his people. So that through his humble life and his humble death and through his glorious resurrection, he fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3. Amen. So that through his incredible humility, his people could find forgiveness of sin. So that through his incredible humility, as a Christmas hymn sings, we might find comfort, and joy. Friends, this truth of God working through humble Christ is a truth that we can never assume, never forget. This is our hope. It is our hope that God worked in this humble way. This is our hope because through this, we see his incredible 
love for his people. Which is actually the last truth I want to rehearse with you this morning. Fourth, friends, please hear this. God loves his people. That's the story of Christmas. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but they'd have eternal life. So if you think through this text, this familiar story, as you remember yet again how God kept his promises, how yet again God is in control of the entire situation, how yet again God was at work through even rulers like Caesar Augustus, how yet again God worked through humble means by sending a son, his son, to be born of a virgin who laid in a marriage manger. All these things are all pointed to the glorious, consuming, steadfast love of God. God loves his people. And friends, we can't miss that truth. This is the truth that we must continue to go back to time and time again because we desperately need to hear it and remember it. Which, If I can be a little vulnerable with you this morning, personally, this truth, this is the one I probably struggle the most to believe. That God loves his people, even, even me. So friends, this morning, this Christmas season, may we never get tired of these truths. But may these truths be told and retold and retold time and time again, year after year after year, so that our hearts may be filled with the wonders of his love. Now, as I close, if you do not know the love of Christ, we're grateful you're here with you, or we're grateful you're with us today. And I want you to know it's actually really humble, humble ways by which you can know the love of God. And it's just simply by receiving it. Like, turn from sin and humbly receive the love that God has for you through Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us. You love us even though that we are sinners, even though often we are faithless. Lord, we do not deserve your love, but we are so grateful for it. And so, Lord, I pray this Christmas season and always you'd help us to trust and to remember that indeed you do love your people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to trust that you do keep your promises to us. Help us to believe that indeed you are the one who is in control. And that somehow, someway, you even use humble people like us to accomplish your will. Praise on Jesus' name. Amen.